Extra Daily Planet Extra. Legend has it that one day, a new king will come. Who will use the power of the trident to put Atlantis back together again. It's the exact spot that Volko gave me my first swimming lesson. I already know how to swim. Not even close. You have to forget all the teaching of the surface world. Go deeper. One cover your Atlantean instincts. He spent his entire life training. Training to be the best. My parents made me what I am. I am the protector of the deep. In this trident resides the power of Atlantis. In the wrong hands, it would bring destruction. But in the hands of the true heir, it would unite above and below. The time has come for Atlantis to rise again. We must stop him. And how do you propose we do that? By retrieving this. I already got one of those. Not like this one, you don't. The war is coming to the surface, whether you like it or not. Your mother always knew you were special. She believed you'd be the one to unite our two worlds. Atlantis has always had a king. Now I need something more. But what could be greater than a king? A hero. The Man of Scream. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 23 of Man of Screen Extra, and by now it should be clearly very apparent that I'm doing this whole hiatus thing wrong. I haven't released weekly episodes really since uh, the end of Superman the Movie Month at the end of October, and here I am. This will be my fourth episode, I think, that I'm releasing in December, and my third in the past week. So, clearly I am not doing this hiatus thing correctly, but stuff keeps happening that I want to talk about, so here I am talking about it. And what I'm going to talk about in this episode is my review of Aquaman. When I was planning out my Man of Screen extras, I wasn't necessarily sure if I was going to do an episode on Aquaman. I kind of wanted to see how things went and if I wanted to uh, talk about the movie at all and my experience viewing it. And apparently, I do want to talk about it. So here I am doing another Man of Screen extra. Again, this will be my third that I'm releasing in the space of a week. But before I get to the business of this week's episode, there is the usual feedback segment. And I have feedback here from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen Extra episode 22, which ironically only dropped earlier today. I posted it up around 2 in the morning uh, on the 26th, and here I am at 11.10 p.m. on December 26th, beginning this recording. So, Dave writes, Greetings, Mike, and Merry Christmas. A wonderful choice for a Christmas episode. 
As you mentioned, everyone has their own favorite version of the Dickens classic tale, and this is certainly a fine one. My own favorite live-action version is the Alastair Sim version, favored by your parents. But my all-time favorite version is, perhaps surprisingly, the animated Mr. Magoo's A Christmas Carol. At one point, you mentioned that we don't see much of Scrooge's home, and you say that, since he's rich, you'd expect his home to be a large one. We actually know from Dickens' original book, Scrooge actually only lives in a few rooms of the house, with the rest of the building being used for merchants' offices. Those offices being unoccupied on Christmas Eve night, he's even more alone and isolated. It's also interesting to note why Dickens wrote so passionately about the mistreatment of the poor. When Charles Dickens was about 12 years old, his father, John, was sent to a debtor's prison, and, as sometimes happened, the whole family, with the exception of young Charles and his older sister Fanny, moved into the prison too. Charles worked hard to repay his father's debt to get him out of prison, but it was actually an inheritance John received which allowed him to pay off the debt. The whole experience left an indelible mark on Charles, who wrote of the hardships of poverty in many of his novels. I hope you and your family had a very good Christmas, and will have a happy and healthy 2019. Live long and prosper, Dave. So, as usual, Dave, uh, I'd like to thank you for writing in. And, uh, yeah, my family and I, we had a pretty good Christmas. Things went according to plan, and things are continuing going according to the plan. And at some point, that's pretty much all you can ask for, is it? As far as uh, Dave's letter goes, it's not surprising at all to me that... uh, Dave favors the Alastair Sim version. Dave was born in the same decade as my parents. I think he's uh, quite a few years younger than both. But So it makes a lot of sense that Dave would favor the same version of A Christmas Carol that they do. Maybe it's a generational thing. And I'd also like to uh, thank Dave about uh, filling in my gaps, uh, my knowledge gaps regarding the novel, which I mentioned on the previous episode that I hadn't read. So so it makes a lot of sense that uh, Scrooge only lives in a few rooms of the house and... Uh, that jives with what I think it's Fred says at the party when he's visited by the ghost of uh, Christmas present, that Scrooge doesn't even use his wealth to make himself happy and comfortable. So it doesn't really make much sense that he would have an extravagant house despite his wealth. So, And I also didn't know the story about the uh, debtor's prison with uh, Dickens and his family, but it does make sense about why he would write about the hardships of the poor so much. What is the Christmas Carol, if nothing else, basically a statement on how those who are more fortunate and more well-off should you know, help their, their fellow man who was struggling. And he definitely highlighted that the poor seemed to be better people because they were much more appreciative of what they had versus a character like Scrooge who was cheap and miserly and cunning and ruthless. Such a point is extenuated by the ghost of Christmas present, indicating to Scrooge that it's possible that he is part of the excess population and not the poor. So that's really all I got on Dave's letter. Dave didn't really have any notes on my comments about the movie himself, but I agree, it was a great choice for a Christmas episode. I have the next few Christmas episodes planned out. I have some ideas that I'm not going to announce just yet. But I do know what some of my plans for the future are, and I am comfortable enough putting them on the recording here and announcing them now. I'm, maybe I won't do that on Facebook until this episode drops, but I have decided what this podcast is going to look like going forward. And it is going to go forward, so don't worry about that. Obviously, the mission of the Man of Screen podcast to cover... Superman on the screen from the 40s until whenever I had stated that if I got through Superman the Animated Series, I would be happy with that. Nothing changes that. That is still my goal to, at the very least, get through Superman the Animated Series and then kind of make decisions from there. Here we are late in December. I've moved a month ago, so I'm starting to get back into the flow of things. There's been a hell of a flow if you consider how many extras I put out in the last week. Like I said, three episodes in the space of seven days is enough to uh, test anyone's limits. So, Man of Screen Podcast is going to remain the same. Man of Screen Extra is going to uh, continue to be an as-I-want-to-record-them show. And 
I will continue to record Man of Screen Extra episodes as I see fit. My plan is still to bring the main show back in early March. I think if I start getting going on that soon, I can do that, get enough episodes done. I can do that. But one thing that will change is that I am going to shutter Man of Screen at the movies with three episodes. Initially, I had created that to kind of be a companion to the podcast as I kind of marched through time. I talk about movies that came out at that same time that, that I love. And you know what? I decided that that was too much. I'd much rather focus on what this podcast is supposed to be, what I conceived it to be. Covering Superman content through time. And because I found that I went through the list of movies that while I enjoy many of these movies, I'm not sure I have a lot to say about them. So, I'm not saying that some of the movies that were scheduled are movies I am not going to ever cover. Those will just become Man of Screen Extra episodes. There's already a few, uh, not exactly Christmas Christmas movies that I'm, I plan to cover uh, over the next several holidays. So, more on that as time marches on. So, starting in March, Man of Screen Podcast will return. At least, as of right now, I have plenty of time to get at least the next eight episodes out before I start releasing anything. And Man of Screen Extra will continue to be in as-is show as I need an episode. So, basically, back to basics. No more Man of Screen at the movies. Uh, it was a nice idea while it lasted in concept, but I'd rather stick to the mission and not uh, get caught up in too many side projects. So, with that being said, I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, then I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about some of the background with the Aquaman movie. Hang around, folks. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. The Fire and Water Podcast. Celebrating Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas, and Firestorm, the Nuclear Man. Available at Fire and Water Podcast, Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, here to talk about Firestorm. Along with me is my co-host, Rob Kelly, here to talk about some guy that talks to fish. Really? You're going to pull this crap during the promo? It's bad enough. I have to put up with your shenanigans every... All right. Welcome back, folks. Uh, A little bit about uh, the Aquaman movie. It was released to theaters on December 21st, 2018. I am sitting here and recording this on December 26, 2018, at shortly after 11, and I have and I saw the film earlier this afternoon after work. It's doing well in its first few days of release. It uh, had a domestic total as of Christmas Day of 105.7 million dollars. Not bad over the course of the Christmas Christmas weekend. It was the lowest Friday to uh, Sunday debut of any of the uh, DCEU films, but it already has a $451 million take at the foreign box office, including did, did very well in China, over $200 million. So this movie is on its way to some decent box office numbers. The budget was around estimated at around $160 million, So I'm not a box office analyst. I can't project out what this film will make domestically or worldwide, but $105.7 after five days can't be too bad. I don't know what the film pulled in today, but the theater I, I saw it in was about more than half full, which isn't bad for Wednesday at 4 p.m., I don't think. 
Wednesday is my short day at work, so I uh, went to see the movie right afterwards at the uh, local theater with the uh, reclining seats that my daughter Haley said she preferred, if you remember the uh, Superman the movie episode. So, And I'm thinking, as I look back on my viewing of the film, you know, I didn't really expect much, you know. One thing that struck me when this film was being produced is that there was no behind-the-scenes drama. This movie wasn't constantly showing up in headlines uh, about Warner Brothers studio dysfunction or stuff like that. It, there was none of that. James Wan seemed to run a real tight ship, and I was impressed by that. There wasn't, you know, no BS coming out in the uh, internet uh, media. At least that I know of. I didn't see anything. I mean, even Wonder Woman, which came out on the heels of Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, and Suicide Squad, at one point had you know, speculation that it, the film was a disaster, and it turned out it wasn't. But there was none of that drama surrounding Aquaman. I don't think anybody expected a lot of this movie. I'm not necessarily sure what I expected of this movie going in, to be honest. And maybe that was a good thing, because I just kind of let myself sit there and take in the whole thing, and... I was impressed. I really liked this movie. You know, Aquaman takes a lot of crap, mostly due to the Super Friends, which I'm covering on the regular show once I get back to it. That show did Aquaman no favors. And Momoa already, Jason Momoa, who plays Aquaman, had already had one uh, DCEU film under his belt. He was in Justice League. He was, you know, dubbed Aqua Bro by the way he acted. I wasn't not, I did not like uh, him in that movie, but he wasn't really the highlight either. So. I didn't really know what to expect of uh, Jason Momoa as the lead, and I think he did well. He had a decent uh, character arc from the beginning to uh, the end of the film. I really do think he started off as the Aquaman we saw in Justice League and evolved to become what he becomes at the end, by the end of the film. And I'm going to make this announcement now. I will be spoiling the movie, so if you have not seen the movie yet and are planning to... You might want to stick this podcast on pause and uh, come back after you've seen the film, because I will be spoiling major plot points. But I really enjoyed this. I'm going to be honest, it is a top two DCEU film for me. After I saw Wonder Woman about a year and a half ago, that film shot to the top of the charts with regards to the four DCEU films at that point. Now we're at six, and I don't know where I rank this compared to Wonder Woman. It feels as low just as I sit here right now, that I had more fun watching this than I did Wonder Woman, which for me is the, my main requirement when I go to a movie. How much did I enjoy watching it? And I don't recall having as much fun watching Wonder Woman as I did watching this. I remember leaving Wonder Woman saying that, you know, I really, that was a good film. I really liked that. But there were so many great moments, so many great Aquaman moments that I'm going to go out on a limb and say, this might be my favorite right now. And Although I don't want to commit to that because... The movie's still fresh. I, I walked out of the theater four and a half hours ago. So I need another viewing or two to kind of... And, and some time to pass to kind of settle my opinion. I mean, I like to draw a distinction between favorite and best. Wonder Woman might be a better film, but I might have enjoyed this more. So I really have nowhere else to go with that. So I just know I had a hell of a lot of fun watching this because even Wonder Woman, to an extent... and. It was a war movie, so it couldn't really do this. This film embraced its comic book silliness in a way that no other DCEU film has. I don't even know if silliness is the right word, but, you know, because a lot of us, you know, a lot of us younger comic fans will often refer to Silver Age silliness, and there really wasn't much of that in this film, so. I guess a better way of saying that is, this film was not ashamed 
of its source material. Go back five years to 2013, Man of Steel. This moment right here. General Swanwick, sir. I'm on with the control tower. Colonel Hardy's on his way in and he's got Superman in tow. Superman? The alien, sir. That, that's what they're calling him, Superman. Right there in Man of Steel, it, it seems as though they're embarrassed. They don't want, they're trying to avoid saying Superman. And to be to be honest, if if you're ashamed of your source material, you should not be making the movie. So, and there were some similar plot lines to Man of Steel and, the, and this movie. There was there was a lot of the uh, the Son of Two Worlds theme was explored in this film, just like it was in Man of Steel. And I'll be honest, it was explored better here than it was in Man of Steel. So James Wan is definitely bringing us into the post Zack Snyder era and. If there's going to be more films like this going forward, then yeah, bring it on. Because I'm tired of Warner Brothers being trying to cash in on these characters, but at the same time being ashamed of them. And there was no being ashamed of Aquaman or his concepts here. So overall, this was a fun film to watch. I really enjoyed it. Some of the major details. Film was directed by James Wan, who I believe is best known for the Conjuring films. And... It was produced by Peter Safran and Rob Cohen. Screenplay was David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick and Will Beale. Story by Jeff Johns, James Wan, and Will Beale. Aquaman was created by Mort Weisinger and Paul Norris. The main cast features Jason Momoa as Arthur Curry slash Aquaman. He is the half-Atlantan, half-human, eventual king of Atlantis. He's uh, very strong. Because his body needs to be strong to withstand the depths of the ocean, he can communicate with other aquatic life, i.e. he can talk to fish. There's also Amber Heard as Mira, and she was... I really liked Amber Heard in this film. She is the daughter of King Nerissa of Xibel, and she was raised by Queen Atlanta to become queen. She has, uh, I believe the comics call some hard water powers, and she can control... She has power over, over the water. Willem Dafoe is a Volko. He is a Arthur's mentor and uh, kind of an advisor to uh, the king. Patrick Wilson is Orm Marius, or the Ocean Master. He is Arthur's half-brother, and he is the king of Atlantis during the film. Dolph Lundgren as uh, Nerys. He is the king of Zebel, and he's Mira's father. And (laughs) I'll be honest, it was kind of annoying me for a little while, because I I was watching the movie, and King Nerys looked quite familiar. But under a red beard, eventually I figured out it was... uh, Dolph Lundgren underneath that red beard and uh, red hair. I'm used. To, I'm so used to Dolph Lundgren being a blonde that I didn't uh, put it together until <laughs> like halfway through the film. There is also uh, oh my god, I'm going to uh, butcher the hell out of this name. So I'm sure the actor's not listening. So here we go. I'm going to give this a shot. Yahya Abdul Mateen II as David Kane and Black Manta. He's basically a treasure hunter and high seas mercenary. He uh, will be. Seeking revenge on Aquaman for the death of his father, which I believe is a plot out of the comics. Nicole Kidman as Atlanta. She is the Queen of Atlantis and uh, the mother of both Arthur Curry and Orm. Some additional actors include Graham McTavish as King Atlan, the ancient king of Atlantis. Tamara Morrison is, is Tom Curry, a lighthouse keeper who was Arthur's father. Ludai Lin is Merc, the captain of the Men of War. Randall Park portrays Dr. Stephen Shin, who is a character, I believe, introduced in the New 52, I want to say. And uh, Michael Beach is Jesse Kane, who is basically Black Manta's father. One uh, interesting bit of of casting is that Julie Andrews provided the voice of Carathon, one of the monsters. Why I, I say that's kind of interesting is because this film is in competition with Mary Poppins Returns, which is a sequel from Mary Poppins, which I believe was the 60s, I believe. And that starred Julie Andrews as uh, Mary Poppins. So a little bit of a 
crossing of the streams uh, there, so to speak. That's the main players. Uh, so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take another break. I'm going to play another podcast promo, and then I'm going to come back and talk about the film. Hang around, folks. What? Have you ever read uh, a Superman comic? Not in the last few hours. Oh, I was just checking, right? Just checking. Hey, everyone. My name is Michael Bailey, and I have been a fan of Superman for as long as I can remember. In 1987, I started collecting the Superman comics as a going concern, which led me down a long and winding comic book-filled path to 2007 when I first started podcasting. Well, it's 2017, and because it's been 10 years since I started podcasting, and 30 years since I started reading Superman full-time, I thought it might be fun to start a new show called It All Comes Back back to to Superman. It All Comes Back to Superman will be my monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith, where I will pick out something about the Man of Steel and discuss it. Sometimes I'll be alone. Sometimes I'll have a guest. No matter how many people get involved, Superman will be the focus. It All Comes Back to Superman is part of the Fortress of BaileyTube podcasting network. New episodes will drop on the 28th of every month. This show and all of the other programs that are part of the Fortress of Baileytude podcasting network can be found at www.fortressofbaileytude.com. All right, welcome back, folks. And here I've got a plot synopsis here for Aquaman. In 1985, Maine Lighthouse Keeper Thomas Curry rescues Atlanta princess of the underwater nation of Atlantis during a storm. They eventually fall in love and have a son named Arthur, who was born with the power to communicate with marine lifeforms. Atlana is forced to abandon her family and return to Atlantis, entrusting her loyal advisor, Nuitas Volko, the mission of training Arthur. Under Volko's guidance, Arthur becomes a skilled warrior, but is rejected by the Atlanteans for being a half-breed and ultimately leaves Atlantis behind. One year after Steppenwolf's invasion, as seen in Justice League, Arthur confronts a group of pirates attempting to hijack a Russian naval nuclear submarine. Their leader, Jesse Kane, dies during the confrontation, while his son, David Kane, vows revenge against Arthur. David later targets Atlantis at the behest of Orm, Arthur's younger half-brother, and Atlantis' king, who uses the attack as a pretext to declare war on the surface. King Nerys of Zebo swears allegiance to Orm's cause, but his daughter, Mira, who has been betrothed to Orm, refuses to aid them and journeys to the surface to ask Arthur for help, earning his trust by saving Thomas from a tidal wave sent by Orm. Arthur reluctantly accompanies Mira to a rendezvous with Volko, who urges Arthur to find the Trident of Atlan, a magic artifact that once belonged to At- Atlantis' first ruler, in order to reclaim his rightful place as king. They are ambushed by Orm's men, and Mira and Volko escape without having been seen, while Arthur is captured. Orm visits Arthur in captivity, and announces that Atlanta was executed for her crime of having a half-breed son, blaming Arthur and the surface for her death. He offers Arthur an opportunity to leave forever, but Arthur instead challenges him to a duel in a ring of underwater lava. Orm games the upper hand that nearly kills Arthur before Mira rescues him. Together, Arthur and Mira journey to the Sahara Desert, where the Trident was forged and unlocked a holographic message that leads them to Sicily, where they retrieve the Trident's coordinates. Meanwhile, Orm provides David with Atlantean armor and weaponry and sends him to stop them, imprisons Volko upon learning of his betrayal, and coerces the remaining kingdoms of Atlantis to pledge allegiance to him and his campaign against the surface. Meanwhile, David spends time heavily modifying Orm's technology. In Sicily, a fully armored David, now calling himself Black Manta, 
ambushes Arthur and Mira and injures Arthur before being thrown off a cliff to his apparent death. Mira nurses Arthur's wounds as they journey to the Trident's whereabouts and encourage him to embrace his destiny as a hero. Arriving at their destination, Arthur and Mira are attacked by a legion of amphibious monsters known as the Trench, but manage to fend them off and reach a wormhole that transports them to an uncharted sea located at the center of the Earth. There, they are unexpectedly reunited with Alana, who was sacrificed to the Trench for her crimes but managed to escape and reach the uncharted sea, where she has been stranded ever since. Arthur faces Carathon, a mythical leviathan that guards the trident and voices his determination to protect both Atlantis and the surface, proving his worth and reclaiming the trident, which gains him control over the Seven Seas. Orm and his allies lead an army against the crustacean forces of the Kingdom of the Brine with the intent of completing Orm's surface battle preparations. However, Arthur, Mira, and Alana, with the assistance of Carathon, intervene and lead an army of marine creatures in battle against Orm and his followers, who renounce their obedience to Orm and embrace Arthur as the true king upon learning he wields the trident. Arthur defeats Orm in combat, but chooses to spare his life, and Orm accepts his fate after discovering Arthur has found and rescued their mother. Adlana returns to the surface to reunite with Thomas, while Arthur ascends to the throne with Mira by his side. In a mid credit scene, Black Manta is rescued by Dr. Stephen Shin, a scientist obsessed with finding Atlantis, and agrees to leave Shin there in exchange for his help in his revenge on Arthur. Alright, so I've already mentioned what I think about the film, so uh, at this point I'm just going to kind of go through things a little bit, and uh, the film pretty much progressed in a chronological order for the most part. Not a ton of flashbacks. Whatever flashbacks there were, were was kind of Aquaman telling the story of his life. And we see the first few years of Arthur's life. We see the Thomas Curry rescue Atlana and then nurse her back to health. So she, you see them have a son and you see young Arthur have to, uh, see young Arthur talk to the sh- some sharks at the aquarium. So you see that this kid is a little bit different growing up. And uh, Atlana, to save her family, she gives up that life and goes back to Atlantis. So very early on, Arthur is learning about, you know, noble sacrifices and things like that. This film does fit into the DCEU. It's a DCEU film. There's no two ways about that. And one of the things that, you know, kind of irritates me about the Marvel movies, and they've done it very well, and it was their plan, so I'm not, I'm never going to fault the company for doing something I don't like. And it's not even that I don't like it, it's just, I grew tired after 18 films of the continuous universal through line to Avengers Infinity War. It was well done, and I presume it's going to be well done when it when it all kind of culminates next April, but one of the things I noticed that I really enjoyed about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is, and even the Ant-Man films, I haven't wa- gotten a chance to watch Ant-Man and the Wasp yet. I have it, but I'm doing a, leading up to Infinity War on, on my own, I'm doing a rewatch of the entire franchise, so I just kind of, I'm going to put Ant-Man and the Wasp off until until then. But one of the things I noticed when I watched Guardians of the Galaxy Part 2, Volume 2, rather, I enjoyed the movie so much more because it didn't feel like it was somehow slaved to the overall plot of the franchise. So, say what you will about the quality of each film, and we can all say quite a bit about the quality or lack thereof of the previous DCEU efforts. And now that Zack Snyder is gone, we're going to see a lot less of this. I don't need there to be a overall franchise storyline like Marvel did. I have no problem with Superman doing his thing over here, Batman doing his thing over here, Aquaman over here, Wonder Woman over there, and then, you know what, they just intersect for a Justice League movie. I don't need things to be set up for 20 movies. Because now, if you look at the way Marvel's done things, you 
do miss something if you've only watched Captain America or if you've only watched Thor or something like that. I don't know anyone who's done that, but the Marvel films make you feel like you need to see all of them. I mean, DC is not really having enough of an output to make, to have you pick and choose, but if you want to skip one, you you can skip one. I'd rather, you know, more of a loose universe than the tightly woven universe that Marvel has put together. I'm not saying one way is better than the other. I'm just stating a preference. I'd rather see them do individual stuff on their own, intersect when they need to. It, we, you don't have to have big lead-ups to everything. Just show me a show me an enjoyable film, and I'll worry about the universe later. So I don't need it to be as intertwined as Marvel is. Stuff can exist separately and still be on the same world. So the, there is one throwaway line in the film that does establish that Justice League happened. So I was happy to see that that at least it was acknowledged, and basically, and, and it's in the form of a line that Mira says to Arthur, saying that he saved Atlantis during uh, in the fight against Steppenwolf. So, it was acknowledged, at least. You know, James Wan admitted to doing his own thing, but he did. it's not like he didn't acknowledge what came before. So, there's that. I do think there might have been a slight discontinuity caused by this film, though. Because in Justice League, there's this moment between Arthur and Mira. You took a hell of a hit. You alright? At last. The firstborn of beloved Queen Atlanta. Wait! Please. I knew her. Well, that makes one of us. When my parents fought in the wars, she took me in. What a saint. You dare speak of Queen Adlana that way? Your queen left me on my father's doorstep and never gave me another thought. Your mother left you to save your life. I cannot imagine how it hurt her. What it cost her. But you're not a defenseless child now. It would have been her responsibility to follow that monster to the surface and stop it. Now, it's yours. Then I'm gonna need something from you. Where he says he needs something from her, I always assumed that he needed Atlanta's trident. This film kind of implies that he had the trident the whole time, so maybe there's a way to squeeze that in. Maybe uh, Volko would bring the trident to train Arthur, and then it will go back to Atlantis after training was over. I don't know. I guess that's one way to no prize it, but apparently he kept the Trident after the events of Justice League. So, so while it's not slavish to the rest of the universe, it does work, is what I'm saying. So, you know, I liked all the characters. This film was really several different films at once. There was kind of a Game of Thrones aspect to it, with the uh, political games being played by Orm. There was a lot of comic book-related over-the-topness especially from the villains. Each of the two main villains, Black Manta and uh, Ocean Master, had a moment where they basically said, call me whatever my villainous name is, Black Manta or Ocean Master. One of the, and uh, I, you can already see that there were some corrections. One of the big mistakes a lot of, well, I don't know about a lot of people, but a lot of people in the podcast community feel Warner Brothers made in the lead up to Justice League was to leave Superman out of the promotion. Whether that would have changed anything, I don't know, but that film had a very mediocre take at the box office. But it seemed almost as though in reaction to that criticism with regard to Justice League, this film ushered, ushered out a one-sheet that had Aquaman in his full Aquaman glory. So I think just seeing that raised the hopes of, Aqu- of Aquaman fans a great deal. And just fans of DC in general, knowing that, okay... I mean, the film's not super serious. Uh, Jason Momoa is quipping his way through the film, and... Uh, you can have comedic moments in a film, 
but still take the material seriously. And I do believe that this film took the Aquaman material seriously. There wasn't jokes about him talking to fish and uh, stuff like that. This film was not a comedy, but there was there were comedy bits in it. You know, I really liked uh, Amber Heard as Mira. I don't know a lot about Amber Heard. I don't know what else I've actually seen of her that she's in. I liked her as Mira. She looks really good in that green uh, Mira costume, so I have no complaints there. And this film, like I said, it had the Game of Thrones political stuff. You know, the uh, the machinations of the throne to uh, declare war. It had superhero action with Black Manta and Aquaman. It had treasure hunting. And I am a huge fan of the PlayStation Uncharted franchise. So that game, those games feature a lot of, you know, treasure hunting and uh, puzzle solving to figure out where you need to go next. So there was a degree of that in this film, especially in the middle when they're searching for the trident. You know, they have the little uh, thing that they have to plug into the uh, Sahara to get the hologram of King Atlan to show up. And I really like the puzzle of having to put the uh, the bottle in the hand of Romulus to see the way to, to the trident. That sort of treasure hunting plotline really appealed to me because of my enjoyment of the uh, of those games. I've actually already purchased the most recent one. I've got a uh, one through four, but I just recently purchased the uh, Lost Legacy game with some Christmas money that I that I got. So there is. So that really appealed to me. There was that, and then after when they're on their way to the Trident to find the Trident, they have to go through the trench. So then you have sea monsters and you know really ugly looking things. There was an element of horror and creatures. So James Wan really tapped into a lot of different genres to make this film. And you watch these things, and they shouldn't work, but somehow it does. You know, and that's a credit to the filmmaker, and it's a credit to the actors. I mean, like I mentioned before, I definitely see a progression over the course of this film. When this film starts, it's very much the Arthur we saw in Justice League, the reluctance. I mean, he's a hero, but he's reluctant to step out into the into the forefront. He'd much rather remain, remain a myth. But those on the seas know him, and that's how he makes his enemy of Black Manta. So we have a superhero revenge plot, because Aquaman is... Uh, at the beginning, he kind of goes with the uh, Nolan Batman philosophy of I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you mentality that that Batman had. He starts with that, and uh, he's looking to save everyone by the end of the film. So there's definitely huge character progression. I really don't have a my Aquaman because I'm Aquaman is always a character for me that was always there. He wasn't necessarily a character I really read a lot until recently, and I'm getting in more into him now through the Rebirth comics and the new. I really enjoyed the New Fifty Two run. Believe it or not. Not everything was crap in the New 52. A lot of it was, but one of the highlights of the New 52 era was definitely the uh, Jeff Johns Aquaman comics. So, what else do I have to say about this film? Obviously, I loved the uh, Amber Heard and Jason Momoa had great chemistry, which is required because Mira is Aquaman's love. Willem Dafoe was Volko, kind of ordinary. A much more subdued part than you're normally used to seeing Willem Dafoe play. Normally, I'm normally used to seeing Willem Dafoe play off-the-wall characters, but he was pretty normal in this film. And then, you know, like I mentioned before, the horror movie, a beast movie, and there were plot lines. There wasn't really, I can't remember of anything that I didn't like, you know. You know, I really liked uh, Arthur rediscovering his mother in the center of the earth. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, so we also got Journey to the Center of the Earth in this movie, too. So there's a whole lot of stuff in this movie. And it's a visual feast. There is plenty of stuff to lay your eyes on. The screen is very busy. But not too busy, you know. It looks as though you'd expect the undersea to look like. It does devolve into a little bit of CG soup at the end. But, you know, kind of we're at the... And I do admit that the final battle was a little hard to follow in places. But maybe I need to uh, 
just to see it again a couple times to uh, cement what I've seen. And then, and obviously, it is predictable in certain in certain places. Obviously, when you know that when Arthur goes to challenge Orm in the beginning, he's not in his green and, and orange Aquaman outfit, and you don't know he can't win here because of way too soon. Much more, much more movie to tell. So, and it was his defeat there that kind of launched him into the middle of the film, which was the treasure hunt. There was like a, there was some very Lord of the Rings moment too when. Arthur goes to claim uh, the trident, and the Carathan appears. It gave me a real, uh, the Army of the Dead feel from uh, The Return of the King, when Aragorn goes under the mountain to enlist the Army of the Dead for help, because the Carathan would only yield to the true king. So there was a great deal of similarity there, and Arthur pretty much is worthy because he doesn't want to be king, as I recall, you know. You can't take notes in the movie theater, so I'm doing all of this from memory, and sometimes memory fleets on you, but... Arthur's reluctance makes him worthy, and he eventually pries the trident from the dead Atlan's hands, and it's really cool to sequence that, a lot of visual effects, and eventually you see, he comes out of the waterfall in his Aquaman glory, the orange shirt and the green pants. So, yeah, he's Aquaman, (laughs) right from there. The only thing that seemed to rub me the wrong way is a little bit, I mean, obviously it was really cool when he comes up on the Carathon and starts kicking the crap out of Warm's uh, armies, but really, they're going to give up everything just because... Because he got the trident? Okay. It just seemed a little too convenient that everybody uh, turned on Orm because of uh, a mystical tool, but whatever. I want to comment a little bit on the Seven Seas and the Seven Kingdoms. Is uh, And probably why I thought of Game of Thrones during the film is because of the, uh, they kept referring to the Seven Kingdoms, which is a big thing from uh, Game of Thrones. The four main kingdoms we dealt with were Atlantis, Devil, the Fishermen, who were basically kind of mer um, creatures. You know, they had... They basically look like uh, sentient fish. That's why they're called the fishermen. And the and the kingdom of the brine, which was crab people. There were crab people in this movie. Very cool to look at. And then there was the trench, which was the monsters. That's five kingdoms. And the other two kingdoms were uh, died out. One was the deserters. And that's where they found the King Atlan hologram. And I don't remember what the seventh one was. Maybe the, that was from the Hidden Sea? I don't remember. But it's not important. As he only really needed four anyway to become the quote-unquote ocean master. And... You know, they didn't hide from that. They didn't hide from any comic concepts, which I really loved. It is definitely, like I mentioned before, definitely time for Warner Brothers to stop being embarrassed of its characters. So, obviously, by the end of the movie, the uh, Arthur rallies the uh, the troops and all the Atlantean troops, and Orm surrenders after one-on-one combat with Arthur. And, of course, as most villains do, after they're defeated, he screamed for, Orm screamed for Arthur to kill him, and he didn't. And But then it, it still wasn't done. There was a nice touching moment where Alana walks up and, you know, kind of professes her love for her two boys. And she embraced the uh, defeated Orm. And honestly, I was getting pretty nervous during that segment. I'm sitting, I was sitting there thinking, all right, here we go. He's gonna, he's gonna hug her. He's gonna kill her. And then Arthur's gonna get pissed and run his trident through Orm's face. I was so relieved when that did not happen. It was definitely the high road, the better way to go. Warm walks off and is arrested, so he's not killed, so he can come back in a future film, because, and this is a problem with Aquaman, I'm going to get to in a minute, because the problem with Aquaman is, people only want to tell three stories. His origin, which could which could or could not include his ascension to, th- to the throne of Atlantis, and they want to tell a story of somebody knocking him off the throne, and him coming, him taking it back. I'm not sure where else you go with Aquaman from here, to be, but that's not my concern. When they bring the next Aquaman film to the screen, and I'm pretty sure they will, we'll find out that. But 
I was so relieved when Orm did not kill Atlana. And, you know, there was the moment where she asked him about Tom Curry, and he, Arthur said that he still walks to the docks every morning. And it's so rewarding for his story to find Alana finally at the dock. She doesn't have to be queen anymore because Arthur's king, and Arthur's parents can have their the rest of their life. So, a DCEU movie with a happy ending. Who'd have thunk it? It can be done. Warner Brothers, when you finally get off your asses and decide to give Henry Cavill another shot at Superman, more of this, less, ma- less Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. Let a comic book movie be a com- comic book movie. And then, you know what, you don't have to have a big lead-in story. Just bring them together when the threat comes. Get these guys, get the Justice League eventually back together for the Legion of Doom. Not everything has to be dark side. There are plenty of other stories to tell. And I'm sure there are plenty more Aquaman stories to tell. I look forward to hearing that there will be more Aquaman movies. I mean, I think this movie's doing well enough right out of the gate that it should get a sequel. It's getting a decent reception. I mean, it's got a 64% on the uh, tomato meter, if such a such things matter to you, which isn't great, but it isn't bad either. I mean, more importantly, what I consider more important than the uh, tomato meter is the audience score, which at the moment is sitting at 82%. So it seems as though people are enjoying it, which is really all you can ask. Like I said, I don't always ask for the greatest movie ever made. I just want to have fun watching the movie, and I had a lot of fun watching this movie. I hope you had a fun listening to my rambling about it. You know, one of the things about new movies is you kind of have to do it without notes because... You just kind of sit there and take the movie in and ramble about it later, kind of off the top of your head. So, I'm sure there are things I've forgotten. If you think I've forgotten anything, manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over the Facebook group, just put Manascreen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Manascreencast. And if you don't mind, why don't you uh, leave a review for me on iTunes? That'll help others find the show. So, next time, there are no plans at this time for... The next Man of Screen Extra. I didn't even know there was going to be a Man of Screen Extra this time. So, until next time, folks. Have a good one. Remember, we're all on the same team. Good night. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com and you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.